Well, welcome again. My name is Sam Chan. I'm here with City Bible Forum. So we're here as part of the Alt Jesus week-long campaign that we're doing here in Canberra. And what I'm doing today for a session before lunch and a session after lunch is something on how we can tell our friends about Jesus. Now, before I kick off, I'll just do some preliminary stuff. When it comes to evangelism, we're presuming a few things. We're presuming that God does his supernatural personal work. But also we, as humans, we are what theologians call the natural means through which God does his supernatural work. So the example is the big miracle in the Old Testament is the passing of the Red Sea. And if you read the Bible, it's God who parts the Red Sea. But in the Bible, it also says God sends a wind that parts the Red Sea. And he asked Moses to raise his hands to part the Red Sea. So we actually have a natural explanation for why the Red Sea parted. Wind parts of the Red Sea. So someone standing there, if they had to answer the question, why did the Red Sea part? They'll say, oh, a wind came and parted the Red Sea. And someone could also say, oh, it's because Moses raised his hands. He went, and that's what parted the Red Sea. So we have a natural explanation. Or we can talk about when Elijah built the altar on Mount Carmel. God sent the fire. Elijah couldn't send the fire. But Elijah still had to build the altar. He had to put the rocks there. So all I'm saying is when it comes to evangelism, Yes, God does his supernatural personal work. He sends the Holy Spirit. He opens hearts. He opens eyes. People hear. People believe. But we have to do our natural bit of telling our friends about Jesus. And, I'm just, and so what I'm concentrating now for the next two seminars is what we do. Because someone in question time will always ask about, well, how can we dimension prayer? How can we dimension the Spirit? How can we dimension God? Well, that's what we're presuming. And now we're talking about what we do to tell our friends about Jesus. Now I'm going to draw a loaf of bread here. So this is a loaf of bread. And it's not just any loaf of bread, it's a gluten-free loaf of bread. And it's not just any gluten-free loaf of bread, it's made by a brand called Bergen. Bergen gluten-free bread. So in this room, who here eats Bergen gluten-free bread? All right, two hands at the front. And are you loyal to this? This is all you buy? You're not loyal. So why, why sir, Hugh, do you uh, buy Bergen gluten-free bread? Because it's about price. It's price, pricing, okay. Balance between edible and cheap, but you're not loyal to it. You buy other sorts of gluten-free bread. Could be Helga's, okay. One of the competitors, you're happy to buy Helga's. So you're not loyal to it. Anyone else buy Bergen gluten-free here? One man in a room of 100. One man. Who here buys any sort of gluten-free bread? All right, so we have a few more hands. Okay, why aren't you buying Bergen gluten-free? No, no, um, I don't even know your name, sir. Ash. Ah, oh, she buys a few. Okay. I saw a hand here. I don't buy 
What brand do you buy? Deeks. So why do you buy Deeks? It's yummy. And why won't you buy burger gluten-free? It's not edible. <laughs> and you've tried it. All right. Okay. Okay, who here does not buy any sort of gluten-free bread? All right. Why won't you buy gluten-free bread? Hmm? <laughs> it's not bread. You don't... You can eat gluten. All right. I'm asking all of this because I have a friend called Tim. Tim is one of my close friends. Tim is in marketing. His job is to market Bergen gluten-free bread to you. And he has been in marketing for quite some time. And I know you're going to think, oh, we can't use marketing for evangelism. Now, remember, God, supernatural, personal agency, but now we're using natural human means, like Moses raising his hands. We can use marketing and evangelism, all right? So let's get that out of the way. So his job is to somehow get you buying Bergen gluten-free. And Tim says what he does, and this is his idea, is he realises in this room there are eight categories of people. So let's put them up. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Category number one, hostile. Number two, open. Number three, considering. Number four, you might try it out. Number five, entry level acceptance. Number six, Oh, actually only seven, so I, I had more room. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Number six, you make the switch. You switch over to Bergen gluten-free. Number seven, you become loyal to Bergen gluten-free. All right, so hostile. You're saying there's nothing to this gluten-free diet. It's rubbish. It's a hipster fad it's, you know, organic, organic. It, it'll die out, there's nothing to it, and it's not bread, so why would I bite? So you are hostile to the idea of gluten-free anything. Number two, you are open to the idea of a gluten-free diet. Maybe there's something to it, but I'm definitely not going to buy Bergen gluten-free if I'm going to go Bergen, uh, gluten-free. Number three, you start considering the idea of gluten-free and you start considering the idea of burger. Maybe it's an okay brand. Number four, you try out burger, gluten-free, and you think, huh, it tastes okay. Maybe I might buy it. Number five, you now have an entry-level acceptance to burger, gluten-free. It's one of your many brands. It becomes one of your repertoire of brands. So you're not exclusive to it. Number six, you switch over. You know what? I'm going to start buying gluten, uh, Bergen gluten-free bread. And number seven, you become loyal. You become exclusive and you behave like a Bergen gluten-free buyer and you start telling your friends, hey, you should try Bergen gluten-free. And so what he says, the big one, big barrier is this. Trying to get someone to get a piece of Bergen bread into their mouth. That is their big thing. So he's doing, pouring all his energy in getting you from here to here, trying out. And his next one that he's trying to pour energy into is getting you from switching to loyal. They're, they're, they're the things he's pouring all his energy into. And it's like the whole world is a funnel. We have all these people over here and we're trying to funnel them 
over here where it becomes narrower and narrower until you have this loyal base of Bergen gluten-free. These are your main barriers. One and two have a roadblock before they can become number three considering. Then there's a roadblock here before you start trialling and there's a roadblock here before you start switching. And so what Tim says, he starts using levers. Just imagine using levers to try to get people to move from this category to this category, this category to this category, and this category to this category. So what are levers that he tries using? Well, here you're relying on social forces. That enough friends, you're hostile, you're hostile, this gluten-free thing is rubbish, it's a fad, there's nothing to it, it's not bread anyway. But social forces, enough of your friends are on a gluten-free diet. You might have to cater for them if you invite them over for lunch, but enough of your friends are on a gluten-free diet. So you start thinking, hey, maybe there's something to it. And maybe, and enough of them are using Bergen, then you think, well, I'm going to have to try Bergen, you know, because my friend's on Bergen. So you start considering gluten-free and you start considering Bergen as a brand of bread. So the, now the levers here are trials and promotions. So they might have it uh, on, on display. Uh, they might have free samples. They might have sale prices. Buy one, get the second one free. Trials and promotions. Second lever, they have easy access to Bergen gluten-free. So suddenly it's at eye level at the shops. It's just at the checkout counter as you're trying to leave. Number three, wisdom. They start seeing that Bergen gluten-free seems to work for their friends. Ha! Huh. There seems to be something working for them. They're on Bergen, but I'm not on Bergen. Number one, two, three, four, felt needs. You start thinking, ha, huh, I need to do something about my diet. I need to do something about my health. So you have felt needs. And then number five, maybe there's a crisis. Your doctor gives you a scare, a health scare. You need to do something about your diet or you will die. So you have a crisis. Now I think, whoa. So trials and promotions, easy access, wisdom, felt needs, crisis, pump, critical moment. Now you put a little piece in your mouth. You are trialling out. He, Tim has poured all this energy from getting you here to here, trying it out. Now you've trialled it. Now it's been in your mouth. He needs to get you from here to switching to being a Bergen buyer. So what he needs are these three levers, benefits, you need to start noticing, ha, huh, I feel better. I'm not bloated. I don't have the discomfort I used to. I think I'm healthier than I used to be. So you start noticing benefits. Behaviour. You need to start behaving like a Bergen gluten-free buyer. Maybe it gives you a T-shirt with Bergen on it and you proudly start wearing it. It gives you a free T-shirt. Now you start behaving like a Bergen gluten-free buyer and you find belonging. You start feeling tribal about being gluten-free and being on Bergen gluten-free. There's another gluten-free person, you're gluten-free, I'm gluten-free. So it becomes your identity. You become quite tribal about it and boom, now you switch to Bergen gluten-free and what he needs you to do now is become a daily eater 
and now you hopefully go from switching to loyal, exclusive, and telling other people about Bergen gluten-free. Now, Tim is in marketing, trying to sell you Bergen gluten-free. Tim also became a Christian 12 years ago, has a very distinctive pre-Christian past, and now is a very loyal Christian. And he says, you know what? This is exactly what happened to me and how I became a Christian. And he says, I think this is how people become Christians. There are some people who are hostile to the idea of religion at all. There's nothing to religion. It's just a social construct. It's just an open for the masses. It's just a crutch for weak people. There's nothing to it. Then there's some people open to religion. You know what? I think there's something open, something to spirituality. A lot of people in this world are spiritual. A lot of people have religions. So maybe there's something to it. So you start considering a religion. It's about time I went to a church or a temple. I need to become more spiritual. Stephen Bidoff, his last chapter, says we need spirituality. Maybe it's about time I checked out spirituality. But it could be anything. It could be Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism. It could be Christianity, but it doesn't have to be Christianity. But then bit by bit, you try out Christianity, and then you start having an entry level, but becomes one of your repertoire of brands of spirituality. You try out Christianity, then you start having an entry-level acceptance for Christianity and then you switch. I'm going to become a Christian and then you become loyal. I am now loyal to Jesus. I am of team Jesus now. And I would tell all my friends, you've got to become a Christian and I'm exclusive about being a Christian. So how do we get people to go from hostile to loyal? Well, my friend Tim says, well, it's social forces. Over here, people... Really, all this is not going to work for hostile people. They need social forces. They need enough friends in their network who are also Christians. So suddenly they think, huh, there's something to being a Christian. I have a lot of friends who are also Christians. And then they start considering Christianity is one of their many options of spirituality. And so for us, churches can offer trials and promotions. And typically we call them pre-evangelism. Yeah, so pre-evangelism is maybe a church soccer team where they start trialling you know, something churchy. They're part of a church soccer team. Easy access, so something like a Christmas carols night, maybe a family service, maybe what we might call a seeker service, something like that. Then they start noticing wisdom. Ha! Huh. My Christian friends seem to have a life of a way that works better. They have a better work-life balance than I do. They seem to do family better than I do. There seems to be wisdom in the Christian way of life. Then there might be felt needs. Maybe our church offers parenting seminars or maybe there's a child playgroup for felt needs. And then, then there might be a crisis. Your marriage might break up. You have a health scare or there's a death of a loved one. And Tim said he felt all of these. He was hostile as a Christian, but bit by bit he falls into a group of Christian friends. There's easy access to Christianity, maybe the intro to Bible courses that he starts reading. Had a crisis, his dad died. And then he starts noticing his Christian friends have a way of life that works better. So then you start trying out Christianity and you start noticing benefits. Huh. It just seems to work better. It's a better way of doing family, better way of raising children. And if I send my kids to Sunday school, ah, they pick up values that they wouldn't have picked up if they hadn't gone to Sunday school. And then you start behaving like a Christian. 
you start turning up to church. You're still not a Christian yet. You start turning up to church. You even do funny stuff like you put yourself on rosters. Somehow you're on the morning tea roster or you're on the church setup roster. You put yourself on rosters and then you start turning up to weekly small groups and then you start feeling a belonging with Christian friends that you never had before and then now you become daily. You make the switch. You say, you know what? This is it. I'm going to become a Christian. I'm loyal to Jesus. And more than that now, you become loyal. You start going to weekend conferences. You start taking on training. You might do correspondence courses. You might think I might go on a missions trip or something. And now you've become loyal. All right, so what we can take away from this is evangelism is this global, holistic thing. It's no longer just, can I get a two-minute conversation in with my friend about Jesus? It's this global thing, and all of it is part of the act of evangelism and also means we can be more deliberate about who am I targeting. Like, if this person's hostile, maybe this isn't going to work yet. I have to use social forces rather than this. So it means we have to be more deliberate about where is this person that I'm targeting when I'm telling them about Jesus? What lever am I going to use? And actually, what stage am I moving them to next? So you can't get someone from hostile to loyal in one week. And this is like a two to three year thing. And it means we just have to be more generous about other people. So when we see someone doing a church soccer team, we can be narrow and say, what are you doing a church soccer team for? They're not hearing about Jesus. Or why are you running a child's play group? They're not hearing about Jesus. But it's all part of the, the, all the levers that we're using. And bit by bit, we're moving them to the next stage. So what my friend Tim has brilliantly captured in his funnel analogy, because he sees it as a funnel, we're in a funnel moving that way, and using the levers and the roadblocks, is what missiologists have discovered a while ago. Missiologists used to have this thing called the angle matrix, where they saw this scale in terms of mind and knowledge. So this is information about Jesus. So people begin here with no information about Jesus, and bit by bit, they get more information about Jesus. And then here, ping, they get enough information about Jesus that they understand that they now become a Christian. And now they're a Christian at this point, and bit by bit, they mature more and more as they increase their knowledge about Jesus. But missiologists now realise, wow, that is way too narrow because we missed out this dimension, which is the dimension of the heart. And the emotions, maybe. And where people begin with a closed heart and bit by bit they go to an open heart. And here, I guess, here, people are uninformed, uninformed about Jesus, and here they're informed. And this is known called the grey matrix. And on the grey matrix, people begin here, closed heart to the gospel and not enough information to become a Christian. And we have to move them this way from a closed heart to an open heart 
and then they are open and start receiving information about Jesus. So a lot of what we're doing here is actually opening hearts, social networks, felt needs, uh, trialling and opening their hearts so that then they're open to the information about Jesus. And so what I think has been happening with evangelism in Australia is we're putting a lot of our resources in information. We need to get more information about Jesus there, but we're not working enough on opening hearts for Jesus. And the typical Australian, the typical Caucasian Australian, I think, sees themselves as over here. They think they have enough information about Jesus, but they've rejected Jesus, so they have a closed heart to Jesus. And so that's why when we keep telling them about Jesus, they're not listening. They're not listening because they're over here. They think they have enough information and yet we keep giving them information when we need to be opening their hearts. And I think most Asian Australians actually begin here. So they have a heart already open to the spiritual, a heart already looking for freedom from superstition, a freedom from the status anxiety of their parents, so their hearts are actually already open. So when you give them information about Jesus, they prove to be really fruitful soil. And that's why Chinese church is exploding. But also shows why the same methods that work in a Chinese church aren't going to work so well in a Caucasian church. And we can say, hey, but it's causing growth here. Yeah, but we're working with soil that was already with open hearts. We're actually we're beginning with people who are seeing themselves as over here. So what I'm going to do is now for the next maybe 40 minutes for this seminar, share some things that we can do to move people along this matrix, some of the levers that we can do. And then there'll be some time for question and answer, then we'll have lunch, and then we'll have the next seminar where I'll talk for about 60 minutes, and then we'll have question and answer as well. So let me share with you some levers that we can use to move people in this journey. The first one is we need to get our friends to become their friends. We need to get our friends to become their friends. Now, what am I talking about, get our friends to become their friends? Well, I want you to imagine, I come here and I say, you won't believe what happened just the other night. My wife and I were kicking back, watching TV, when this UFO landed in our backyard. And this little green man got out. He asked us to go in. So my wife and I did. And this UFO took us to his home planet, Jupiter. And we got out. He showed us his friends and family. We had a meal with him. And we got back in the UFO and and because of the whole space-time continuum thing, we went through a time portal and only one second of Earth time went by. Now, who here believes me? All right, wow. <laughs> in a room of 100 people, only a handful believe me. Let me tell you another story. 2,000 years ago, God sent us his son, Jesus. And I don't know how it works, but Jesus was 100% God 100% human at the same time. And, when he, and he was born of a virgin. And when he was alive, he raised a dead girl back to life, gave a blind man his sight, and he died on a cross. And if you believe this happened, God will wash away all the shame and guilt and filth in your life. Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days later, 
He rose again back to life. If you believe this, his spirit will live in you right now. But Jesus and his body is up in heaven right now. And depending on which denomination you belong to, one day in the future, he will come again and set up a physical kingdom here on earth. And in that moment, your body will rise from its grave and meet Jesus. Now, who here believes me? Wow. So in a room full of 100 people, most people believe the Jesus story. Now you guys think, why are you happy to believe the Jesus story but not the Jupiter story? Because let's face it, the Jesus story is a lot less believable than the Jupiter story. Because I'm telling you the Jesus story, I'm starting to think, even I'm not quite sure I believe this story myself. Why are you happy to believe the Jesus story but not the Jupiter story? Because they both sound just as unbelievable. Because of what philosophers call this thing called plausibility structures. And plausibility structures are these pre-programmed, predetermined things that we have that will prejudge a story as true or not true. So as here's me happily telling you my story. Here's you, not quite sure what to make of the story. Your plausibility structures are prejudging, predetermining whether the story is true or not. So as I'm telling you the Jupiter story, I'm saying a green man got out of a UFO the other night, your plausibility structures are redlining up. Bam, bam, bam. Unbelievable, unbelievable, unbelievable. And then we went to the planet Jupiter, got out, Bam, bam, bam. Unbelievable, unbelievable, unbelievable. And we went through this time, space-time continuum and a time portal and only one second of Earth time went by. Bam, bam, bam. Unbelievable, unbelievable, unbelievable. But as I tell you the Jesus story, 2,000 years ago, Jesus, born of a virgin, bling, 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 green light, green light, green light, believable, 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 died on a cross and rose from the dead, Bling, 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 believable, believable, believable. And one day your body will rise from its grave and meet Jesus. Bling, 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 believable, believable, believable. Because of your pre-programmed, predetermined plausibility structures that prejudge a story as true or not. Where do we get these plausibility structures from? We gave them three main sources from our community, from our experiences, and from the facts evidence and data. So right now, none of us belong in a community where people believe in UFOs. None of us have had a personal experience of a UFO and none of us believe there are enough facts, evidence and data to support the UFO story. But most of us here live in a community that also believes in the Jesus story. Most of us here have had a personal experience of Jesus in our life. And most of us here believe there are enough facts, evidence and data to support the Jesus story. That's why we believe the Jesus story, but not the Jupiter story. And we think the most important source of plausibility structures is facts, evidence and data, but it's actually the other way around. Your community is the one that's most important in determining what we believe. Your community determines how we interpret our experiences, and our experiences determine how we interpret the facts evidence and data. So like it or not, 
rightly or wrong, it's community that determines what we choose to believe is true or not. See, if I said to you, the UFO is in my backyard right now. Who here wants to make the three-hour drive to Sydney to check out the UFO? Okay, yeah, 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 okay. A minority, minority of the rest of you think, I am not going to waste a three-hour drive to check this out. And if you came and saw the UFO, you touched it, you'd be thinking, nah, 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 nah. This is a hoax. This is an elaborate hoax. There's some other explanation. You choose to interpret the data the way you want and you explain away the data based on our community and our experiences. See, it's a community that determines what we believe, what we understand, and how we behave. So as I explained to you before, I have three boys, and when you have children, parents play this game. We want a name that's not too weird, not too common. We don't want a John, Pete, or David, because that's <laughs> boring. But we don't want something so weird, like Matthew with three T's and a silent Q, that's just weird. No, we want that name that's just right, not too common, not too funky, that shows, hey, how cool are we? Look at the name we came up with. And so we thought, let's name our second child Cooper. Hey, how cool is Cooper? Not too common, not too weird. So we named him Cooper. That year, Cooper was a top 10 name in Australia. So we all behave like sheep, whether we know it or not. We end up doing what everyone around us does. Now, in this room full of Bible-believing, church-going Christians, who here believes in public education? The government should pay for my education. All right. Oh, it's a majority. It's a majority belief. And especially the uni students. Yeah, heck yeah. You know, the government should pay for my university. All the older people. No, 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 no. I work for my money. You guys need to work for yours. Who here in a room full of Bible-believing, church-going Christians thinks... Uh, the government should pay for our health. Public health. Wow. Majority, majority, majority belief again. All right. Who here believes, in a room full of Bible-believing, church-going Christians, that motorcyclists should wear helmets? It should be the law. It should be mandatory. Wow. Majority belief. Who here believes that we have the right to pack heat? We should have turned up here with guns. Like, we have the right to bear arms. <laughs> okay. All right. Look around, look around. <laughs> These are the people in your church, all right? Okay. The right to carry a concealed firearm. All right, now it's interesting because I lived five years in America. In a room like this full of Bible-believing, church-going Christians, no one would believe in public education or public health because it's my money. I work for it. Why should some lazy person who didn't work for it get my God-given money? All right? And they all believe motorcyclists should not wear helmets. It's their head. They have their right to do what they want with their head. And then they have an accident. At least they're paying for the cost of their health care, not me. <laughs> their money, not mine. And they would all believe we have the right to pack heat. It's a God-given right. So essentially, it's not a church-going Bible-believing thing. It's a community-determined belief. All right, now let's say I come here and tell you the Jupiter story. I'm the one schmuck with the Jupiter story. So it might be true... But it just seems unbelievable because I'm the only one in the room who believes the story. Let's say, as I tell you the Jupiter story, this half of the room says, me too. That happened to us the other night. I thought that was you at Jupiter. Just wasn't sure, so I didn't wave just in case it wasn't you. 
wow. Now, how does this half of the room feel? You're thinking, half of the people that I know and trust also believe in the Jupiter story. This comes across now as more believable. Now, let's say you come in and everyone says, ha, oh, me too. That happened to us the other night. We went to Jupiter. We had the UFO thing. And you're right, only one second of Earth time went by. And you're the only person that doesn't believe in the UFO story. Now you're the one schmuck who doesn't believe in the UFO story. Now this is coming across as really, really believable. When you have your youth group at night and there's like 20 kids in all of Canberra on a Friday night at youth group doing the Bible study, it comes across, boy, we're the only ones in Canberra doing this. It comes across as unbelievable. Then once a year, you take them to some youth convention where 2,000 kids are moshing in some worship mosh pit. Now, they think, wow, we're not the only ones. This comes across as more believable. So why am I saying this? Because typically as Christians, when we evangelise, we think it's, we go out solo. We think, okay, I've got to join a, a, a book club. Maybe I'll join a soccer team. Maybe I'll join a cooking club. And I would tell everyone there about Jesus. But we, we're the one schmuck in a group of 20. So what we need to do to make the Jesus story more believable, it's true, it's true, it's just how, how to make it more believable. And Paul does the same thing when he tries to tell the Corinthians, you know, Jesus rose from the dead, that's true, Jesus rose from the dead. You know, I saw him rise from the dead. Oh, and also the other apostles saw him rise from the dead. Oh, also there were 500 people who saw him risen from the dead. Now that's more believable, isn't it? It was always true whether he saw him risen from the dead or not. But if 500 people saw him, okay, that's believable. Okay, so typically what we do as Christians is we go solo. And now we're the one schmuck in a room of 20 who believe in the Jesus story. What we need to do is merge our universes. Because typically we have a universe of Christian friends and a universe of non-Christian friends. And so when our Christian friends go to the movies, we go with them to the movies. When our non-Christian friends go to the movies, we go with them to the movies. When our Christian friends have a barbecue, okay, we go with them to the barbecue. When our non-Christian friends have a barbecue, we go with them to the barbecue. We have two separate universes. What we need to do is deliberately, proactively change our lifestyle and merge our universes. So when our Christian friends have a barbecue, we say, hey, can I invite some of my work friends or some of my neighbours, some of my university friends, some of my non-Christian friends. And when our non-Christian friends have a barbecue, we try to invite some of our Christian friends and bit by bit we merge our universes. So it's a 50-50 split. So 50% of the group are Christians, 50% of the group are non-Christians. And bit by bit, our friends will become friends with their friends and their friends will become friends with our friends. So I used to live in, as a doctor, I used to live in hospital accommodation. I was one doctor sharing accommodation with three other doctors. These three other doctors were not Christians. But because I was in the apartment, all my church friends would come and visit me and start making friends with these three guys. And every time my church friends had something on, we'll invite our non-Christian flatmates. And every time our flatmates had something on, we'll invite the Christian friends. And after one or two years, they became genuine friends with my non-Christian friends. And the Jesus story became more believable. And after two years, all three gave their lives to Christ because the Jesus story became more believable. So what I'm actually arguing for here is we always think of evangelism as this 
event or this thing we tack onto our life, I'm arguing for that we need to actually change our lifestyle to become evangelistic. It's like health. We always have a health scare and every New Year's Eve we promise, oh, this year I'm going to get fit. I'm going to eat less. I'm going to exercise more. And so we try to tack on stuff into our lifestyle. I'm going to wake up at five and I'm going for a run. I'm going to sign up for a gym. And it goes for about a month and it stops happening because we've tried to add something to our life. But as I say, your life has to change. Your life has to become healthy. And the same with evangelism. It's more than just an event we tack onto our calendar, in our church calendar. It's more than something where we add to our day, like, oh, I've got to somehow tell my friends about Jesus, or I'm going to sign up for a book club and I'll tell them about Jesus. It's actually got to become a lifestyle change where we merge our universes and get our friends to become friends with their friends. All right, so related to that then is number two. We need to start going to their things. So go to their things before they come to our things. Go to their things before they come to our things. So I can get invited to speak at evangelistic events put on by churches. And I have a friend called Andrew who often organises these evangelistic events and I go and speak at them. And every time I turn up, Andrew, who organised it, is surrounded by five of his non-Christian friends. And every time I go, they're five different non-Christian friends. And every time we go, they're five non-Christian friends who are happy to be there. You can see their, their body language. They're happy to be there. And afterwards, they talk to me and they had a great time. So I said to Andrew's wife, Jackie, what is Andrew doing? How is he able to keep bringing non-Christian friends to these evangelistic events? And how come they're happy to be there? And he said, well... And she said, well, it's because we're always going to their things. We're always hanging out. This is just one of many things we would be doing anyway. We're always going to their things, so they're happy to come to our things. So just think about it. Normally, the church puts pressure on you, saying, oh, there's an evangelistic event coming up. There's a men's breakfast. There's a men's breakfast. Tell your friends to come. And you think, oh, how do I tell my friends to come to a men's breakfast? When do men do breakfast anyway? But now there's an evangelistic <laughs> breakfast as well. And, and then your non-Christian friends are thinking the same thing. Here he comes, here he comes. He's going to ask us to one of those breakfast things. Oh, no, this is awkward, and you're awkward, they're awkward. But it doesn't have to be awkward if we're always going to their things. Number three, what I call the coffee, dinner, gospel sequence. Coffee, dinner, gospel sequence. So we're always told, you've got to tell your friends about Jesus. And you think, how do I bring up Jesus in the natural part of a conversation? Like, how do I work this in? Well, don't. Just think, how do I invite my friend for a coffee? Put it that way. Invite your friend to a coffee. And even that's hard. Everyone's so time poor. But invest everything. Like, hey, can, let's do coffee. Let's do coffee. And bit by bit, if you can do that two or three times, you say, hey, let's do a meal. Could be lunch, could be dinner. Bit by bit, you do that two or three times, then you'll have your chances to talk about Jesus. That's just the way it just naturally works. Because coffee is a safe invitation. It's only 10 or 20 minutes. And it's in public space. So you're, not gonna, you're just going to talk about benign things. Dinner, that's a big investment, one or two hours. And it's in private space. And that's where the conversations become more meaningful and bit by bit, if you do dinner, 
you start having gospel conversations because this is how conversations work. Peter Ritchie from Fighting Words, the ministry to the Defence Forces, taught me this. There are three layers to conversations. The first outer layer is interests. The middle layer is values. And then the central layer is worldviews. So typically, conversations begin with interest. Have you been reading books lately? What movies have you seen? What did you do on the weekend? Well, how, how nice has the weather been? So they're interesting things. Values. Where are you going to send your kids to school? What sports are you going to make your kids play? Bit by bit, you're talking about values. And then they become worldview conversations, like what is real? What is reality? Is there a God? Is there life after death? And what happens is you begin in interest, and then people, if they start feeling safe, and if they want to, they start opening it up. And they start inviting you into the next layer. So Chaplin taught me that. They'll throw out hints. People start throwing out hints. So your job basically isn't to talk. It's to let them talk and, and see if you can hear the hints to come one in. And this Chaplin said they will give you a hint that they want to draw you into values. And if you miss it, then they go back to interest. Then they throw the hints out again to invite you into values. And if you miss it, oh, they go back to interest. And then they'll put it out a third time. And if you miss it the third time, they, 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 they give up. They stay in interest. So your job is to try to hear the hint. So I was one time in a conversation with someone, and he said, oh, my mother died this year. And I missed it. And he said, oh, later. Oh, you know, my mother died this year. And I missed it. And then he dropped out a third time. Oh, my mother died this year. And so on the drive back, my wife says to me, do you think he wanted you to talk about his mother dying this year? And I, I missed it. I missed the th but that's the invite. He was hinting, can we come in a bit further? I, I don't want to talk about the weather anymore. I don't want to talk about the football. I want to talk about my mother dying this year. So bit by bit, they drop you a hint that they actually want to come a bit closer. Or you can drop a hint as, as well, you know, and, and you can just ask some questions and invite you deeper and deeper. And so the coffee, dinner, gospel thing, coffee begins with interest. Dinner will usually get you into values, and then values eventually lead to worldviews. Another way I explain this is this, and you might find this way helpful, is in the Western world, there's a movement called the Enlightenment. In the Western world, the Enlightenment happened in the 1600s, one key figure was a guy called Immanuel Kant, German philosopher, and he divided the whole known world into two realms. There was the realm of the phenomenal, and then the realm of the noumenal. So in the phenomenal realm are facts, evidence, and data. In the noumenal realm is God, values, and ethics. And Kant is saying these two realms exist. They both exist. It's just that we can only have access to this realm. We can't access that realm. We can make verifications and prove these claims, but we can't verify or prove these claims. So if I was to say to you, the sky is blue. That's a phenomenal claim. And you guys would all check for yourself, yep, the sky is blue. If I say, 
Water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. You go, yep, water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. I can prove it. If I say the Adelaide Crows lost to Geelong last night, you look up and phone, yep, yep, Adelaide Crows lost to Geelong last night. Facts, evidence and data. But if I start to say, there is a God, you guys would say, no, there's not. Prove it. And I can't prove it to you. If I say to you, rugby league is better than rugby union, you go, no, it's not. Well, prove it. You can't. You can't prove that claim. If I was to say sports gambling is wrong, you go, no, sports gambling is okay. Prove it. You can't prove it. So what Kant is saying, you can't prove the claims here. So these claims always end up in fights and arguments. So don't bring them up. So what are we always taught never to say at dinner parties? Religion and politics. Because their claims in there, they're, they're, you're always just going to cause fights. So let's just talk about... Boy, how blue was the sky on the weekend, and how and how about them? How, 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 how about them crows? And that uh, and you're reading any books? So if I ask, say, what did you do in the weekend? You say I had a picnic. I'm not going. No, you didn't. No, well, no, it's a very safe conversation. If I'm going to say, boy, the sky is blue, you're not going. No, it's not. It's just very safe conversation. Crows lost a long last night. No, they didn't. No, 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 they did. So, uh, and, and so it's nice, safe conversation. So what this means is the Western world since the 1600s has moved to a very strict private public sacred secular divide where you can talk about God and your views on rugby and your views on gambling in private in the privacy of your own home where no one will get hurt Keep those claims of the sacred in the privacy of your own home, but don't bring them out into the public sphere. This is only in the realm for talking about how blue the sky was and how about them crows last night. That's all you're allowed to talk about in public. All right, so what we've created in Australia is an unofficial closed country. We're actually a de facto closed country. We're not allowed to talk about God, Jesus and religion, but it's only a Western thing. So if I was to say, hey, let's go to the capital of Canberra right now and let's do this on the main street, and I'll talk about Jesus and we'll have a prayer. You'd be awkward. You can't do that. That's public. We need to do that in the privacy of a retreat like this. This is where we're safe. No one's going to get hurt. But it's only a Western thing because have you noticed the Asian restaurant will have a little shrine in public? They, they don't have the pri private, public, sacred, secular divide. You can talk about, you know, Muhammad to the taxi driver. He doesn't go, whoa, dude, you're violating my private, you know, secular divide. You can talk about... Buddhism to the Chinese news agent, they go, oh, back off, dude, you're violating sacred, secular right. So it's only a Western thing. So we can fight against it, and there's a time for that, but we can also work with it. And one of the ways of working with it is the coffee dinner gospel. Because coffee is, you're going to be talking about phenomenal. It's public space. Coffee is public space. But dinner, you bring something in a private space, and that's when noumenal talks start happening. So, think more deliberately about coffee, dinner, gospel. Number four is listen to their story. So again, we're always thinking, well, how do I tell my friends about Jesus? How do I tell my friends about Jesus? Well, actually, we don't have to. Remember, it's just get them to coffee. To get them to dinner, into private space. Now, how do I tell them about Jesus? How do I work into the conversation. Again, listen to their story first. So this is how it works. I'm at a dinner party, you know, boom, 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 the music's going. What did you do on the weekend? 
You know, I had a beating. What did you do on the weekend? Oh, I had sport. What do you do for work? I'm an engineer. What do you do for work? I tell people about Jesus from the Bible. <laughs> it's like, awkward, awkward. Well, what has happened there? Here we were having safe, phenomenal language. What did you do on the weekend? What do you do for work? I'm an engineer. No, you're not. No, no, I, I'm an engineer. It's not going to cause a fight. What do you do for work? I tell people about Jesus. We dragged the conversation into the noumenal realm way before we were ready. Now it's awkward. What do we do? It's like a game of chicken. Who's going to blink first? How about them crows last night? Whoa, yeah. How about them crows last night? How blue has the sky been lately? Yeah, the sky has been very blue. And so now we're back here. Whew. But what I sometimes do, okay, we're here way before we were ready to talk about the noumenal realm, God, values and ethics. So I actually give them permission to stay. I put a little floater out there. I say, well, do you have a faith? Or do you pray? Something like that. And then I open up to them. And then they say, I'm a Buddhist. I go, Wow. Tell me about that. What does it mean to be a Buddhist? Did you grow up as a Buddhist? How did you convert? What are your dreams for your children? How do you raise your children as a Buddhist? What do you do in the temple? How do you pray? What do you pray for? Uh, is your husband a Buddhist? How does that work if he's not a Buddhist and you're a Buddhist? So you get them talking and telling you their story. And if they're an atheist, that's okay. You go, wow. Tell me about atheism. Tell me about the God you don't believe in. Were you always an atheist? Did you grow up in an atheist family? And they might say, yeah, I grew up in an atheist family. Mum and dad never believed in God. Not that that makes me an atheist. At the age of 16, I had to make a decision for myself. They might have to say something like that. <laughs> but and, but the, here's the thing. Surveys still show four out of five Aussies believe in a God. Four out of five Aussies believe in life after death. In young people, it's a bit less. It's two out of three. But it's still a majority held belief. So if you're feeling the de facto closed country, so are they. They're not getting permission to talk about what's deepest in their hearts either. And again, and even they don't believe in God, you get them to tell you their story. And you try to get them to talk as long as they can. Because if you ask someone what they did on the weekend, and you let them go for one minute, what will they do eventually? They'll say, well, what did you do on the weekend? And they give you one minute. If you can say, what did you do on the weekend? And you try to get them to go for 10 minutes, what are they going to do? Eventually, they say polite conversation, social etiquette, is they have to say, well, what did you do on the weekend? And if you gave them 10 minutes, they will give you 10 minutes. That's sort of how the social game works. So I was once on a plane flying to Adelaide to give exactly this same talk. So I was, got to the airport, 4 o'clock. My talk was at 7 p.m. in Adelaide. I just had three hours just to settle myself. And... I, you know, for, for, for public time, we all need some private recharge time to get ready for the public event. So I get on the plane, but before I could get the earbuds in, which is the international symbol for do not talk to me, <laughs> the guy next to me starts talking to me. And he says, oh, why are you going to Adelaide? Is it work or play? And I go, work. And then there's just silence. Oh, he wants me to reciprocate. Okay, why are you going to Adelaide? Oh, he says, I'm going home. Silence. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, what did you do in Sydney? He goes, I gave a talk. Oh, he wants me to ask me what the talk was. Okay. What was your talk on? He goes, oh, it was on the physics of MRI scanners to people sitting in their radiology exams. I thought, oh, I set that exam 20 years ago. Now we have to talk about it. 
And then he goes, well, what are you giving your talk on? I'm like, oh, here we go. It's like watching a train wreck in slow motion. <laughs> I'm about to give a talk on the Bible about Jesus. And there's awkward silence. I think, oh, I'm about to give a talk on exactly what to do when this happens. I'll be such a hypocrite if I don't do it. <sighs> okay, so do you have a faith? I asked him. And he said, well, yes. As a teenager, I checked out Christianity in South Africa, and that's when I discovered it was a hate crime against gay people. And I went, wow, tell me about that. Tell me about this journey. So I got him talking, talking and talking for the next 90 minutes as I kept trying to get him to talk and talk and talk. And then the 90 minutes, there was a pause. And I said, okay, from what I have heard you say, this is what you're telling me. And you say your objections to Christianity are it's unscientific, all religions are the same, and, and they're anti-gay. Is that right? He goes, yes, you've heard me. And then I said, would you like me to respond? He goes, yes. And because I gave him 90 minutes, <laughs> he was on the edge of his seat, he gave me 60 minutes until the plane landed, and then at the end he thanked me, he said, oh, you made that plane journey go so quickly. And I'm like, oh, not for me. Exactly. <laughs> so again, it's about listening. And there's a trick to listening. You're trying to do three things. You're trying to listen or hear. And then you go to the next level up, you're trying to understand. And the next level, you're actually trying to feel or empathise. Empathise. What they're feeling. So guys, it's what they teach you in marriage counselling. Remember pre-marriage counselling? Do you remember that? When you're in a conflict with your wife, what are you meant to do? You're meant to hear her, understand her, and feel her. So remember when she says, you're not taking out the garbage, all you do is, I hear you say, and just repeat verbatim. I'm not taking out the garbage. From that I understand, and now you just paraphrase the words to show that you have synthesised what she's saying. From that I understand I'm not pulling my weight in the marriage. Oh, that must make you feel, and then you just got to guess an emotion. <laughs> and it's always anger. So, oh, from that, that must make you feel angry. She goes, oh, conflict resolved. That's all you have to do. Because she will have felt heard, understood, and empathised with. So my wife, she heard me telling guys, this. she said, oh, if I ever catch you doing that to me. And I said, okay, from what I hear you saying, and that's actually all you're trying to do. So when you, when you get someone to talk about their story, try to hear what they're saying, and every now and then repeat verbatim back to them what they're saying. And every now and then, oh, I understand, uh, in some sort of paraphrase, oh, that would have made you feel this way. And until we get that, we haven't actually earned the right to speak. So I have a friend called Jonathan Dykes who does a lot of public speaking, and he was once in this apologetic series where he had to give a talk debating Dawkins, how do you give a talk debating the Da Vinci Code? And Jonathan and I said, you know what? The Da Vinci Code and Dawkins, they're actually very simplistic arguments. They're almost embarrassingly simple. That even the atheist philosophers are embarrassed, embarrassed by Dawkins and Da Vinci. They're so unsophisticated. The arguments are really easy to rebut. But Dawkins and Da Vinci are both in the top 10 bestsellers list of London, New York, and Sydney, meaning people actually want these books to be true. So until we hear, understand, and actually feel
feel the emotional power behind the argument, we actually haven't earned the right to speak. So that's all we're trying to do. We're trying to hear, 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 listen, listen, earn the right to speak. And then they might reciprocate and say, well, tell me about your story. And this is where we get a chance. What number am I up to? Five? Five. Tell our story. But before I jump into this, and just as a side note, actually what I'm showing here is we need to treat people as people. Uh, we're not just, they're just not a vacuum that we're dumping information into. And hospitality is actually the foundation to evangelism. So now you do a word search for hospitality in your New Testament, it comes up everywhere. It's like you don't notice prams until you have to go shopping for a pram. You think, they are everywhere. They're there, three-wheel versions, four-wheel versions. I had no idea. And, and until you look for hospitality in the Bible, you don't realise it's everywhere. It's in the word gifts. And meaning we've always privileged the word gifts, but I think the Bible's almost saying, until you do hospitality, you have no platform for your, your word ministry. It's like a cheesecake needs a foundation. Hospitality is actually the foundation. It gives us space, the network, the permission to do evangelism. Now, then they might say, well, how did you become a Christian? And that's when you say, I was born in a Christian family. I knew Jesus as long as I can remember. <laughs> do not say that. Do not say that. That is Christian jargon for nudge, nudge, wink, wink. You know what I mean. And it's all over in 10 seconds. Like, okay, they, the Christians stop listening because I know what you mean. And the non-Christians stop listening the instant you said that. So what should we say? Well, as Christians, we actually have been taught to tell our story as a story. It's interesting. I used to teach at a Bible college. And once a year, we have to do a Bible college mission where we go to some church and now we're on mission. And usually they trust the lecturer to give the Bible talk. They don't trust the students. So the students... You know, to keep them busy, you can do your testimony. So then they get up and they do their testimony. And I see them and think, every testimony sounds exactly the same. It's almost like I could get up and go, oh, I forgot my testimony. Can I borrow yours? And then I could just go, <laughs> go and read it. And you would not know because all I'm actually giving you is a theological grid. I'm actually not giving you my personal story. So what we need to do is learn to tell our story as a story. And... A missionary in China called John taught me this. Everything works better in threes. It's called the Greek rule of threes. And everything, according to the Greeks, has an intro, a body, and a conclusion. And the transition moment's important. This is where you define the mission. This is where you have a bridge moment. And this is where you have a denouement, a new norm. So look at how this works. All right. Romantic comedy, intro, we meet the characters. Boy meets girl. There's a mission, you must fall in love. And bit by bit, they fall more and more in love. And then there's always this bridge moment at the two-third mark. Pause it. And it's always a two-third mark. And I always do that to my wife. She goes, would you stop pausing and showing it's at the two-third mark? Boy loses girl. And this is where he has to decide, does he really want her? Do I want her? Do I not want her? And then you have the montage, montage, montage. Do I love her? Do I not love her? Do I want her? Do I not want her? 
Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And you rededicate yourself to the mission at this moment. So now you have the romantic gesture, climb a mountain, swim an ocean, catch a train, win her love, bang. And then there's denouement. We show the two happily together, the new norm. All right. James Bond. Introduce the character, James, chasing a bad guy. They catch the bad guy. He reveals there's a bigger bad guy out there who's going to do world domination. Now you have a mission. We've got to catch the bigger bad guy. So now bit by bit, bit by bit. And at this moment, James and the girl are captured in the evil lair. Why? So the bad guy can do the monologue where he can reveal all that's happened before. And now James and the girl are thinking, do we really want to do this? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And then now there's an explosion, blows up everything. That's how Hollywood resolves all loose ends, just a big explosion. And then a denouement, James and the girl together. Sports team, we meet the sports team. Lovable losers, they're not going anywhere. Oh, no, there's a final, grand final somewhere. And we, if we win this, we'll save the orphanage. So now there's a mission, save the orphanage. And then bit by bit, bit by, and then they find a coach, some dead-end coach, and now this will be his redemption story as well. Now bit by bit, and there's this moment, Bridget, oh, I don't think we're good enough, I don't think we can do this. And then there's a pep talk from the coach, and then there's a training montage, yes we can, yes we can, yes we can, then ding, 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 the grand final starts, it's Greek rule of threes again, up. Then they're down, and then finally the buzzer beater. They win, they win, they win. Okay, all right. Even Jesus, we meet Jesus, okay? We meet Jesus, born of a virgin, gets baptised by John. Now he has a mission. He's going to die in Jerusalem. So bit by bit he journeys to Jerusalem, enters the gates of Jerusalem. Oh, Garden of Gethsemane. <sighs> can I do this? Can I not do this? Oh, God, your will, not mine. Yes, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. Okay, then he's crucified. Then he meets his disciples in the denouement. Christian music. <laughs> okay. Verse one, verse two. Chorus it, chorus it. I'll pull it back. Bridget, 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 Bridget. Work it, work it. Drop the instruments. Now raise them, raise them, raise them. Now chorus, chorus, chorus. And then worship leader closes in prayer. All right. That's the denouement. All right. So, so. To make this fit, you just got to, to make your story fit, let me now put this in words, the little grid I now use. So I have a little grid. I have a little grid. Let's see. Okay. Introduce yourself. So this is the intro. Say, I am blank. Like, who are you? Now give an example. So someone else can't take your testimony and read it as theirs because they won't have the same example. I am blank. So what is your mission? So I tried blank and give an example. But, and there's a problem with your mission. You're not getting the mission. You're not fulfilling the mission. And this is the bridge moment now. So that's the intro, this is define the mission, this is the body, but there are obstacles to, in the body. So this is the bridge moment. But Jesus, and then try to give an example. Now this is the climax, the conclusion. So how did you bring Jesus in your life? And now the denouement. So something about now life is like this example so fill in the blanks 
I am an Asian high achiever. That's who I am. For example, I was that kid in your primary school class who always asked for more work. <laughs> I was that guy. So I tried to get into medicine. For example, I studied as hard as I could in high school to get the marks. And if I got 99%, I was so worried about where the 1% went missing. But the problem of being a high achiever is that you always need the trophies more for yourself than for other people. So even if you get into medicine, now you need more trophies. You need to specialise, you need to subspecialise. The trophies don't end. You become actually very proud but insecure at the same time. For example, I remember as a doctor in a ward round where they showed x-rays of an operation that I had done which hadn't gone so well, and that is just burning my brain now, that one bad outcome, and I can't remember the hundred good outcomes I've had. But that's when I realised Jesus was perfect, so I don't have to be perfect. Yes, I grew up in a Christian family. Yes, I knew Jesus all my life. Yes, I knew you know, he could give me eternal life. But I don't think I really understood that Jesus was perfect so that I don't have to be perfect until that moment. So there was a critical moment in my life as a doctor where I had an opportunity to leave medicine so I, I could tell people about Jesus. Not that there's anything wrong with being a doctor and a Christian and following Jesus. You can do that. But I had an opportunity where I, had to tell, I could tell people about Jesus from the Bible, which meant I couldn't be a doctor anymore. And I decided, well, where is my status? Where is my identity? For example, when you're at a party and a doctor, everyone wants to talk to you. They want to show you their rashes. But if you're a Bible talker, no one wants to talk to you at a party. For example, when your doctor, bank managers ring you up and they want to give you their money. Yes, this is a thing in case you didn't know. But now that I'm a Bible teacher, bank managers do not call me up. They do not want to give me their money because they won't get it back. So I've got to answer, well, where's my identity? Where is it found? Can I be secure enough to let it all go and realise Jesus is perfect so I don't have to pretend to be perfect anymore? Now, my doctor friends, when they see me, they don't recognise me. They say I don't drive like a jerk anymore. I'm not in a rush. I don't dominate the conversations at dinner parties like I used to uh, because Jesus is now my identity and I, can, I don't have to prove myself to anyone anymore because Jesus is perfect so I don't have to be perfect. So that will replace my... I grew up in a Christian family. I knew Jesus all my life. Can you see that? And often, if I speak evangelistically, the MC will ask me, how did you become a Christian? And that's when I, in front of all these non-believers, I do not say, I grew up in a Christian family, I knew Jesus as long as I remember. I give them this story instead, and, and it totally works. And you might have heard me do that last night at the, the youth rally when I got asked that question. So the key to this is the first line. If you can get the first line, the rest flows. So I used to give this as an assignment to my Bible college students when I taught them evangelism. I remember people stare at a blank page for one hour. <laughs> Who am I? Because we're not used to answering that question. Who am I? What drives me? What are my ambitions? What will fulfill me? What is my existential cry? And I had one lady in the room. She was just there for a whole hour and says, I can't answer this. I've been a Christian all my life. I can't answer this. So I kept asking her, who are you? What drives you? What will fulfill you? What is the happy ending in your life and what would be the sad ending if you don't get it? What is your existential cry? And finally, after one hour, she said, I got it, I got it, I got it. I am a pastor's kid and I am a people pleaser. So, for example, the pressure on me is in Sunday school. I've got to get every question right as a pastor's kid. 
So I try to always be the goody-goody two-shoes, to be the perfect kid in every class, school, music, and Sunday school. And again, for example, you know, blah, blah, blah. But the problem is, even if I'm trying to be as good as I can be, I'm actually not good enough. For example, there was a piano step that I practiced really, really hard for, and I was still ordinary compared to everyone else. You give your best, but you're still not good enough as a people pleaser. But that's when I realized with Jesus, I don't have to be a people pleaser. Jesus is pleased with me the way I am. And then, for example, so now, blah, um, you know, I don't have to be people pleaser, I don't have to be perfect. And then she gives a now example. The other day at work, there was a mistake, and the boss confronted me. And I was able to own it, say, yes, I'm sorry, I did that. Whereas in the past, I would have had to blame someone else. But now, because I know Jesus loves me just the way I am, I don't have to be a people pleaser anymore. So another guy said, I am adopted. So my whole life, I don't know my biological father. So I've always tried to find belonging in all the school groups. But you never find true belonging. Uh, and he says, for example, on schoolies night, I partied. I did the drinking, and I still didn't find the belonging I was looking for. But that's when I was with Jesus. God adopts me into his family. So I prayed the prayer, and from that moment on. So can you see how that works? So your homework is you've got to spend at least one hour unlocking <laughs> that question. And if you unlock that question, the, the rest might flow. All right. What I'll do is I'll... I've still got way, way, way more material, which I'm going to save for after lunch, uh, but I'll have 10 minutes of question and answer time right now. Oh, it's definitely flexible. Life is so messy, and as you saw with that funnel thing at the start, it's just, I'm just giving you one of many levers and one of many tools to have in our toolbox. So it's definitely not sequential. Um, and, and friendships are different as well, so some friendships take two years to form, and sometimes it takes two years to be able to tell our friends about Jesus, where sometimes it just takes one day. So, so yeah, it's, it's just many tools that we can all use in our toolbox. So not sequential, no. Okay, so the question is, you once had intense friendships at uni, and, you know, it's life changes, those friendships. You just Still friends. Yeah, so, so the apparent what makes friendships work is you have to have frequent easy contact. So that's why you fall out of touch with your uni friends, because at uni you had frequent, easy contact. Now you've got to work hard at the contact. Like, is there a Friday night you've got free? No, there's not. There's not. Oh, so it's hard work. And that's why family's hard work. You know, this compulsory Sunday night get-together, that's hard work. So it's not organic. So apparently you have frequent, organic, easy contact. And they, but, you know, they show at uni, you know at uni here, you're 21st, you had 200 friends you want to invite. I, I turned 50 last year, and I can only think of three people I want to invite to my birthday party. In the end, it didn't happen. I was like, oh, we're all too busy. You know, like, Let's not bother doing this. And, and so the, friend, the nature of friendship changes. So here it's quite diluted. Here it's quite intimate. Here it's all about being under one roof at one time. Here it's all about having meaningful conversations. I think what changes is recognising with each life stage there are different existential cries. And so at university, there different felt needs, going back to that funnel thing, and at midlife, they're incredible felt needs. So I've actually found midlife some of the most fruitful times for value, worldview conversations. Because up until here, 
you are just climbing the conveyor belt like on autopilot. Here now you're, oh my gosh, this is it. I'm just stuck doing this for the next 20, 40 years of my life. So I am two, two years ago I spoke at a church and the minister said, oh, so how's your job with the Bible college? I said, um, oh, didn't you hear? I, I quit that job. And he went, you're having a midlife crisis. You and I need to have coffee next week. So I went and had a coffee with him and he shared with me his midlife crisis. He gave me all these books to read on midlife crisis. I read them and oh my gosh. It's like, again, the pram analogy. You don't notice prams until you buy a pram. You think, they are everywhere. And then you have your own midlife crisis to realise every man out there is having a midlife crisis. It's a second adolescence, just like the first one. Search for identity, just as lost. Uh, so you act out and rebel, but the consequences here are way worse than they were back there. And I tell my friends about the midlife crisis, and they say, we've been trying to tell you for the last five years we're having a midlife crisis. You just haven't been listening. So, so you notice it when you have your own. So apparently men, so it's just sorry to bore you with this, feel trapped by three main things. One, one is their health. Something their body doesn't respond the way it used to. You know, once you could run 5Ks without training, now you know, your knee hurts. And, and, you know, and I even remember Muhammad Ali in his 30s just looking at his belly going, you know, I once used to go for a run and I could get rid of this. Now it just doesn't go. So every man out there is just doing this right now. I think, I can't get rid of this belly fat. So your health is the first one. Second one is your family. Like, you think, I'm now married with kids. Like, I... I Oh, what is going on? I just want my old life back. So just to share, while I've been here in Canberra, they put me in this house uh, uh, that a, a single man has very generously lent me for the week. And as I'm walking around there, this is a single man's house. <laughs> oh, there are no toys to trip over. The wardrobe's just got three shirts in it, like just two pairs of shoes. Oh, this is, there's a desk here with nothing on it. I want to stay here forever. Like, like you just, so you feel so trapped by your family? Because I, I still remember. So, so, and, and the third one, you, get, you feel trapped by your finances because now you're in a mortgage. So, so then you lash for freedom. You either lash out in one or... So you either walk away from the family or you walk away from the job or you suddenly sign up for the gym or something, something like that. And, 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 and then say, so it doesn't make some of the behaviour excusable, it makes it understandable. Suddenly you realise every man in between their 30s and 50s is going through this. Yeah, yeah so suddenly they're different. Yeah. So it's, that, it's what they, you know, again, they teach you in proper listening, like, how are you going? And then you just count to three, one elephant, two elephant, three elephant. <laughs> and they say, now how are you really going? Yeah. And, then, and then they'll share with you how they're really going. Or you just share some of your vulnerabilities. So I really found that at work because I work as a doctor and, and then, so I've got, got contact with doctors and nurses. So whenever I share with them my insights on midlife crisis, oh, there's silence. Everyone is listening. And they say, what are these books? Like they they want to read these books. And I actually had to see a counsellor. So the instant I share, I saw a counsellor and this is what she told me. Oh, everyone, something, so everyone's quite broken between 30 and 50, I think. Very different felt needs then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that grid. So... That they, they feel they have the information, but their hearts are closed. So we, we need to spend more on the heart 
and, and less on the information because they feel they've had the information and they've heard the information, so more information isn't going to do it for them. And I think 1 Peter sort of says the same thing, wives to unbelieving husbands, you can actually win them over without words at this moment because they, they, they've heard the words, they just need the non-word parts of the, of the gospel. That's one thing I could say. The other thing is, um, you know, the Greeks said there are three components to a message, logos, pathos, and ethos. So the logos is what we say, pathos is the emotions, ethos is the way of life. Uh, and so, you know, it, I, won't, I won't break it out too much. So they've already got the logos. What we need to now give them is a pathos, always empathise with them, like feel what they're feeling, and, and then also our way of life. We win them over without words. Someone also shared with me, you know how Jesus has one, there's one verse where he says the harvest is plentiful and he sends out his disciples, but there's another one where he says the harvest is plentiful, pray. Pray God will send harvesters. So I think someone said with the non-Christian family members, often we have to do, uh, often what we can do is just pray, God, can you send another Christian into their life besides just me? And, uh, and the third thing I want to say is that funnel method Remember one of them was the crisis. Sometimes crisis is what we have to pray for as well. Oh God, you know, just some sort of crisis that would disrupt them out of, out of their equilibrium right now. Yeah, okay. So thank you for that. So please hang around for after lunch because there's more good material. Please. <laughs>